Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the Cross Asset Team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor on the market team and the Garfunkel to Sarah's Paul Simon. That's a good one. one? I think it's a good one. I like it. Okay. We're gonna I'm serious. We're gonna see how long we can keep this going. (laughs) Prove how creative Mike Regan really is. I'm dating myself a little bit with these references. I need I need some 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 millennial reference for the kids out there. I'll, we'll, I'll work we'll on come that. up with some uh, some more recent ones for you next time. <laughs> uh, but anyway, Mike, this week on the show, the last time our guests joined us on the podcast, we had this lengthy conversation about how could stocks be near records when the economic outlook was so uncertain. Sound familiar? Well, that was actually last summer in 2019. And it's just a reminder that the stock market and the economy are not one in the same. We've had this conversation many times over the last couple of weeks. But again, he'll tackle the question, but in different circumstances. And as always, we'll close out the episode with the craziest thing I saw in markets this week. So uh, if you saw something crazy, please do give us a call on the Bloomberg podcast hotline at 646 Three two four three four nine zero, and leave us a voicemail with the craziest thing you saw in markets this week, and maybe we'll play your uh, crazy thing on the air. But Sarah, let's uh, let's introduce that guest. Uh, very happy to have him back. Uh, his name is Sean Snyder. He's the head of investment strategy at City Personal Wealth Management. Uh, Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, glad to be back. Great. Um, and we got some notes, uh, some talking points of yours uh, this week. And I'm, I'm fascinated with this notion um, that all that basically matters to a lot of investors right now is the Fed's balance sheet. You point out that at least for part of the, the last bull market, there was like a 90, I think it was a 98% correlation between the size of the balance sheet and what the stock market did. Obviously, now the Fed is expanding that balance sheet again aggressively is that really is that all that matters right now as far as the the level of the stock market i mean i'm looking at valuations and here we are among the highest valuations we've had on a forward basis s&p about 25 times earnings forward earnings nasdaq 100 almost 30 times forward earnings probably in the at least the top decile maybe even higher than that of this century but yet, as you point out, when the Fed is in stimulation mode, um, do valuations really even matter at this point? I, you know, you asked if the Federal Reserve stimulus is all that matters. And I think the answer is that it's not all that matters. You know, health data is now economic data. If you saw a second wave of the coronavirus, then obviously, uh, you know, just having that Fed stimulus may not be enough to keep the market on its pace. So there are things that do matter outside of the Fed stimulus, without a doubt. Um, but one 
things I've referenced lately is how fast and how powerful the reaction um, has been in terms of stimulus. Uh, during the global financial crisis, it took the Federal Reserve uh, almost six years to increase their balance sheet by $3 trillion. We've done that in just three months. Um, so it hasn't been exactly $1 trillion every month. It's been a little bit less, a little bit more, but it's about $1 trillion each month um, so far. Uh, balance sheet's at about $7 trillion now, uh, projected to go to maybe $9 trillion uh, in the next few months, and then maybe moderate. But just the sheer speed at which they operated this time around, um, I think does volumes for the speed at which the stock market's recovered. It's not the only thing that matters, but it is really important. Right. Speed has really been unbelievable. You kind of mapped out the speed of balance sheet growth, but there's a statistic. We just had the fastest 50-day rally for the S&P 500 ever. I mean, pretty unbelievable when you think about that. The S&P now up 40% roughly or so off the bottom. We actually got a question on Twitter for you, Sean, um, from a listener at TweetViewer9. So I wanted to ask the question for him. He said, one, when and if Fed support will ever be removed? So will Fed support ever actually be removed? And what is the downside if this support actually just goes on indefinitely and they can't remove it? I think the most important thing is what happens to the unemployment rate. And right now, you're seeing an unemployment rate that's headed towards the highest level we've seen in decades. And one of the mandates of the Federal Reserve is to have full employment in the country. So I think the notion that they're going to back off of stimulus or start to normalize it uh, anytime soon is probably not accurate. Even if COVID-19 is come and gone and we're past the worst of it, which I'm not necessarily confident about, um, but if you still have high levels of unemployment, I think they're still going to continue to have that policy backstop. Uh, what is the downside if they remove it? It depends on the economic environment we're in. We did see them start to remove it in 2017 and 2018, and the market climbed higher. Um, but it was in this case, it was on the back of fiscal stimulus from Congress. So it really depends on what the environment looks like then. If we're at the end of 2021, and the economy is booming because there's so much pent-up demand and so much stimulus. Well well done, Sean. You know, whenever someone prefaces a question with, we've got a question for you from someone on Twitter. I mean, that's reason to get nervous right there. So I, uh, I, I think I'd be sweating a little bit when, when Sarah prefaces a question like that. You don't know where that one's going to go. Next week, uh, this upcoming week, the Fed will meet uh, for their regular meeting we did have uh, some comments from uh, William Dudley, the former head of the New York Fed, talking about uh, those old uh, boogeyman words, moral hazard, you know, worrying that the Fed is incentivizing uh, excessive risk taking with its latest measures. Now, obviously, I, I think, as you pointed out, the Fed has the mandate to keep unemployment low and to keep uh, inflation stable and, you know, relatively near that that 2% uh, target. I wonder, though, if they will at least try to try to talk the market out of this this sort of phase of exuberance, sort of the way Dudley did, bringing up that moral hazard, that sort of thing. Could could you see that type of scenario where, you know, the, the Fed, uh, maybe someone uses that irrational exuberance or, 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 or sort of warns about the risk of uh, getting too aggressive in your investments at this time of a, of a cycle? Normally, they try to stay away from making commentary about the stock market 
I have seen a few comments over the last few months where they did make reference to the equity markets, which is a bit unusual. I don't think that they're going to back away or talk down stimulus in the current environment with so much uncertainty right now. Um, what does it mean for risk assets? What does it mean for valuations? I do think you could get to a point where the valuations become so stretched that they do start to warn about uh, you know, risk assets being in a bubble. Like We have heard that before, um, but I think we're a ways away from that. Staying on the stimulus theme, but kind of shifting over to Washington and fiscal stimulus. I mean, I, I know that the unemployment boost of the CARES Act is supposed to kind of fall off and expire at the end of July. There's talk of more stimulus in Washington, D.C., but it makes me wonder. I mean, we look at the NASDAQ this past week putting in a record high. We know that this administration does like to look at the stock market quite often and almost use it as a barometer of success sometimes, of policy. We saw it with the U.S.-China trade war in a way uh, when all of a sudden when the stock market would go back up, maybe they would get a little bit more aggressive with their tactics. I mean, do, do you think it's possible at all, though, that what we're seeing happen in the stock market could at least bring down the urgency of, of further stimulus measures to help the economy, and thereby the stock market, albeit they're not in the same. But still, it, it it almost makes you feel if you're only looking at the stock market, like there isn't this urgency for more help. Right. I 100% understand that theory. But I do want to make a couple points that I think go against that notion. Uh, this, The impact of COVID-19 has been felt very unevenly across the demographics in the United States. Uh, Fed Chair Powell made reference to at one point that 40% of households with income under 40,000 had lost jobs. If you look at the unemployment rate divided by education, the unemployment rate for those with a bachelor's degree or higher is 8.5%. The unemployment rate for someone with a high school degree or lower is closer to 20%. So really, really big divide on how it's impacted Americans. So even though uh, the stock market seems to be doing well. If you're working remotely and you have that ability, which is maybe, say, 30% of the U.S. population, you probably feel okay because it's getting sunny out and it feels like the health data has gotten better. But for a lot of people, there's a lot of uncertainty about will they be able to return to a job? And I don't think we know that answer yet. So I hope that they keep that in mind um, when they think about the stimulus. And I, I think they'll go through with more. I'm not sure what the number will be. I've heard $3 trillion, I've heard $1 trillion. Um, but I think they'll do it again based on that premise. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Sean, another uh, interesting point uh, you've made in your notes here is uh, you, you talked about as the economy reopens, investors are kind of rotating out of those stay-at-home stocks, you know, your your social networks, your Zoom, uh, that sort of thing, and, and into what you call 
get me out stocks, which I, I like that. Uh, I love that. I, I like that. Uh, Everyone else is calling them reopening stocks, but no, they're get me out get, stocks. Get me out. I think I think we can all sympathize with that feeling of get get me out of here. Uh, Sarah there in her parents' house in Florida. Although you seem to have a very happy domestic life with with the folks down in, in Florida. Anyway. Look, I'm not I'm not complaining. A lot of people <laughs> have it much worse than I do right now, so I'll I'll handle any uh, annoyances that I have to yeah. deal with very well right now. I think your dad probably listens to the show, so you can't you can't uh, criticize the home life too much, I guess, right? No, not right now. <laughs> not, just in private, not publicly over the airwaves. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Sean, you talk about, you say you still think it makes sense to get into companies that are sort of the, the future of, of America. Walk us through kind of what you mean uh, by that, because I think that is, I think that's a wise call. Sure. So initially, the concept was the core of America and the future of America. And what I meant was core of America was like food and staples retailing, um, you know, the basics of the world that we all need to survive. Right. We saw a huge surge in demand for toilet paper. That's an example of something we all needed at one point. That's kind of the core. The future of America. And I think it's always been this way, but it's been accelerated by COVID-19 is rise in demand for cloud computing. Um, telemedicine, uh, in this case, because of COVID-19, thermal imaging so that you can check temperatures. Those things have really done well, including in-home entertainment, the more popular names that we tend to think about. They actually have positive returns year to date, whereas the get me out stocks um, are still quite depressed, but they're improving. Uh, and there's several data points that I can walk through if you'd like that point towards Americans actually getting out of their house. Uh, there's several things The TSA is reported for seven consecutive weeks. The number of flyers are picking up still quite depressed. But, you know, we saw uh, a large airline announced today that they're actually adding flights uh, according to routing requests for directions. More people are driving. And if you look at open table data, more people are dining, uh, not just in the U.S., but also in Germany and other countries. And they're at reduced capacities, but in many cases are actually hitting those reduced capacities. Do you think that what you see in that data, this like high frequency data that shows people getting out and about finally leaving their homes, does it show enough pent up demand almost to justify this run that we've seen in the markets? I mean, something that was really interesting about this past week was not just that we saw a continuation in the stock market rally, but it almost seemed as though we started to see the bond market giving as well. I mean, we saw a nice shoot up in bond yields, almost this capitulation. What you look at in the data of this reopening, does it actually justify this right now? Possibly. <laughs> but, <laughs> we don't know yet. <laughs> we don't know yet. So it's what you would call, if you're an economist, you call it green shoots, right? There's signs of recovery. You know, there are going to be people that need to fly on a plane because they went and moved in with their parents in Florida and they need to get back to New York. I drove. <laughs> but I, w- I would be requesting Apple Maps directions. Yeah, th- those are the people that might be flying, right? There could be some of that. But I would say something that supports it more than just those things I mentioned earlier is continuing claims, which is a component of the unemployment insurance claims we see each week on Thursdays. Uh, continuing claims look like they have peaked and are starting to come down. That means people are um, going back to work. And traditionally, when you see a decline in continuing claims, that tends to kind of happen around the time when the economy bottoms and starts to recover. So it's not, it's not just these anecdotal things about people going out of their house. It's also labor market data. So I, I think it's real, but it's really early. Yeah, Sean, obviously, the other big news in the past week or so has been this uh, massive civil unrest with you know protests and 
looting and riots across the country. I was a bit surprised that we didn't see a little bit of a risk off reaction to that. I mean, I guess I guess you shouldn't be if you go back in history and look at the 60s riots and that sort of thing. It it never seemed to to put much of a dent in the market. But I'm wondering if these events are influencing your thinking at all about the economy, about markets. And specifically, we're kind of all waiting for this next batch of fiscal stimulus from the government and whether this could kind of maybe reshape what that looks like, uh, a little bit less help for the corporations, a little bit more help for the individuals, perhaps so, you know, something to, to try to sort of soothe the masses here. Um, is that, you know, is, is this working its way into your, your thought process at all when you try to figure out where the market's going next? It, it, it is. And, and I'll get to my point in a second. I mean, I think 2020 has been a difficult year for many people. First, we had COVID-19. You know, now we have the protests across the nation. And, you know, I think at this time, we'd all probably benefit from being kinder to one another in whatever form that is. So I hope that's, you know, the way we head with things. My primary thinking about the protests, aside from, you know, the stuff we all feel strongly about is, what does it mean for the coronavirus? We saw very large Memorial Day celebrations in the United States in certain regions, and now we're seeing very large protests in very merge, major urban areas. Um, if there's going to be a second wave, this seems like a time, a perfect catalyst to me. I, I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm not an epidemiologist. I have no idea. As a strategist, I have to say I'm not an epidemiologist because everyone says that. Uh, <laughs> Clearly, I am not. I don't know. Maybe it hates sunshine and sunshine kills it. Great. Um, but if there's any catalyst, uh, this seems like an obvious one to me, but you're not going to know for a while. It's going to take time uh, for that to spread. Um, if you look at China, they actually re-entered a lockdown uh, again, and it was about a month later. So, you know, maybe the market will care and maybe there will be some market impact from these protests through that form. Do you get the sense at all through listening to communication, maybe from from government officials and also top medical f officials that we've been hearing from, that if there were to be a second wave, that we will see a lockdown reminiscent of what we have all been going through and facing over the last couple of months? I mean, I, I've been thinking about this. We all think, OK, if we get a second wave, there's no question that we have to shut down again. But is, is that true? I mean, is that what we already saw the destruction that can cause to the economy? Like when you think about it from a strategist point of view, do you think that's something we'd have to deal with again? This question comes from Sarah's dad, who's wondering if he should build a new wing on the house or not. Is that right, Sarah? <laughs> oh, that's from my mom who keeps complaining that we need a larger house because <laughs> there's too many of us. And uh, the other the other siblings are supposedly going to show up as well. So <laughs> Everyone needs a home office now. So just build the wing. <laughs> right. So I actually think the odds of a second shutdown nationwide, at least, are relatively low. And there's a few reasons I think that one, I think that we've lost some of the political will to do so. Um, people have seen high rates of unemployment. And at some point, if you're on a balance and on each side, there is the economic damage or the human damage it starts to tilt the other way. And I think that's what we've seen. Uh, the other thing I think that's important is shutting down the system and flattening the curve is not only designed to save life, but it's designed to keep the healthcare system from being overwhelmed. Now, we don't have a vaccine yet. 
we do maybe have some treatments, if those treatments are effective in getting patients out of the hospital quicker, so instead of 15 days, they're out in 11 days, even though that might seem minor, that reduces the burden on the healthcare system and maybe lowers the odds that we have to lock down again, and to me reduces the odds of a W-shaped recession. Back to that letter, what, what is the letter shape? Uh, you know, I, my thinking is that they can't, we can't do the lockdowns again. The lockdowns are over, not because the virus is going away, but because it's not going away. And we simply cannot just stay locked down forever. We have to sort of um, put the masks on and, and try to get back to some semblance of life. I'm wondering if that sort of goes into your thinking about uh, everyone's favorite letter shape of this recovery. You call it a, a V, but a lazy V, meaning that that recovery is not quite as sharp as the uh, decline at the beginning. Um, but it is perhaps if I'm if I'm uh, interpreting the lazy V correctly, it it is kind of a slow and steady uh, grind higher and, and recovery without sort of another nasty dip, uh, sort of a double dip uh, before we're all the way back uh, to the place we started at. Right. So some people would call it a swoosh. I just think lazy V kind of is an easy way to interpret for me. I, ironically, I actually think, you know, you make that a hand symbol when you're at a restaurant for the check and you kind of do a, a little dip down and then a longer thing. That's <laughs> kind of what it looks like to me, which is, you know, kind of ironic in the current environment. I, I think that a lot of the forecasts, are probably, you know, I see more and more economists sort of focusing in on, on that's the shape of what it looks like. And, and I don't disagree. I think you will see a rebound in some areas quicker. And uh, if you have manufacturing or automation or you have simply the social distance uh, that enables you to reopen, they're going to do so. And there's going to be pent up demand. Uh, if you're in industries like restaurants, it's less clear. Again, pretty positive news on people going back to restaurants. But if you do see a second wave, then it could be a very difficult slog for them. So I think it's going to be a long recovery in some sectors. You know, if we think of New York City, I believe about 180,000 of 274,000 food and beverage workers lost their jobs, about 70%. Uh, are they all going to have a job to go back to because they reopened outdoor dining? I doubt it. Uh, and those people are going to be misplaced and it's going to take time to find a new role for them. It, it really is striking. And they're questions that none of us know the answers to yet. But Sean, I have to give it to you for the creative descriptions, the lazy V get me out stocks. I mean, it, we hear similar, similar descriptions often, uh, but those are two new ones. So it's, it's, not, it's refreshing to hear. <laughs> I was sitting at home locked into quarantine when I was just randomly thinking up weird terms. <laughs> You really need a, to come up with an acronym to make it in this business, though, Sean. You know, Fang or, or Bricks or something. Keep, get working on that. <laughs> I will. Sean, how important is the energy market um, in terms of what this recovery looks like, what the stock market sort of reacts to? Um, and, and walk us through your thinking on sort of the, the geopolitics between OPEC and the U.S. and, and the sort of global politics uh, of energy production? Well, we have OPEC meeting coming up. Uh, there is Saudi Arabia, of course, and then there's Russia, and they seem to have very differing opinions on what they want to do. They implemented pretty deep production cuts that were supposed to last through midsummer, about 10% of global capacity or output. 
Uh, Saudi Arabia wants to keep those cuts in place longer, uh, and Russia wants to return to more regular production levels. So it's definitely going to be a little bit of a battle between the two of them. We've seen that before, um, not that long ago, several months ago, where uh, oil prices crashed because the two couldn't come to agreement. So I think there's going to be volatility in that uh, arena or, or commodity. That said, I do think it is helpful that people are driving more. Uh, if you look at China, for example, the number of auto sales actually rebounded pretty strongly after um, they dealt with the lockdown of COVID-19 because people didn't want to take public transit. Uh, I, suspect, I suspect you'll see the same thing here in the United States. Um, if you look at the Apple Maps routing requests for, I mentioned driving directions earlier, but they also have uh, public transit requests and walking and public transit is flatlined. It hasn't changed at all. People do not want to return to public transit. And that's not just true in the United States. That's also, you can look at the data in China, um, other Asia countries that have maybe dealt a little bit, I don't know, I shouldn't say necessarily better, but differently, uh, same thing. So I think there will be higher demand, at least from the driving side. It's it's fascinating the metrics that suddenly become important, like Apple Apple Map requests. You know, it's a it is absolutely fascinating. And one one of the side effects of this virus will be uh, we will now rely on high frequency data to determine rec- when recoveries occur. We're not going to wait for GDP. Third quarter GDP is in September. That seems a million miles away. Yeah, this new world we're living in. Well, and a lot of this data actually wasn't available before the crisis. This healthcare crisis actually made a lot of these private companies open up their private data. That probably wouldn't have happened without COVID-19. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So, Mike, when we were listening uh, to Sean speak about the oil market, I had this transition queued up. So let me know how let me know how I do here. So we have higher higher demand likely. We still have a potential for for muted supply going forward. So it's very unlikely that the oil market's going to get anywhere near as crazy as it was in recent history. <laughs> Not bad. I'll I'll give you a B on that transition I'll, to the I'll crazy take a B. things. I'll take a B, sir. You know I'm a harsh grader though, so. I know, I know. I, I, Honestly, I, I don't even know if I would have given me a B. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that case, you started off. What's the craziest thing you saw this week? Something that I found not just crazy but interesting this week uh, comes to the IPO market uh, when it comes to stocks. So Warner Music Group went public on Wednesday with an IPO price of about $25 a share. Well, $25 a share. That was the IPO price. Well, in this market... It surged on the first day 20% to over $30 a share. And sure, this could represent opinions of investors on on what's going on in the music industry. But I think it's very telling and also just a little bit crazy that seeing everything going on in the world, what we just saw with such a steep and tremendous market collapse, that the IPO market, at least when it comes to Warner Music Group, is thriving. 
That is pretty surprising given the, you know, everyone had sort of left the music uh, business for dead there. But I guess your Spotify's Not and, anymore. Your, and your streaming, <laughs> it's starting starting to add up. That's pretty good. I like that one. Sean, have a B? Yeah. Higher than a B? <laughs> give you an A minus on that one. Okay. That's okay. That's Better good. than the transition. Bringing that GPA up. Good. Sean, that's what we want here. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, how about you? Have you seen anything crazy in markets this week? Oh, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on. But I think one of the data points I recently saw, which is something I would have never thought about, uh, was box office receipts for movies. Uh, at the low, they hit just $5,000 in sales for box office wow. receipts in the lockdown. Uh, it is now proudly back up to above 300000 <laughs> so 5, it, the 5,000 was, was drive-ins, which I didn't even know existed anymore, but they're, apparently they're in hot demand now, big demand. Oh, so like some rich guy got a movie for his own private home theater or something like that? Or? Right. So maybe Kim Jong-un is making up for all the U.S. <laughs> box office sales. I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure that in Queens they ha- they hosted a drive-in, so maybe maybe that. Uh, oh, drive-ins! Added to I got you. Got you. Five thousand yeah. dollars. Wow. Um, yeah, I'm they... pretty sure here in Florida, I- I'm not doing anything. I haven't left the house in a while, but um, mu- uh, movie theaters are opening up pretty soon. Wow. Pretty crazy. Yeah. I, I mean, it's as someone who lives in New York City or, or near New York City, it's hard to imagine going to a movie theater, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I guess not true for other parts of the country. Yeah. yeah. All right, those, you, Mike? those are both pretty good. Um, now I'll give you the winning craziest thing of the week. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I, I'm not <laughs> gonna, I'm not gonna award myself the win, the win anymore. I'll allow you to award me the win after this, uh, Sarah. But we'll, we're, when you deserve it, we give it to you. All right, we're, well, we're is, fair here. This is actually something that happened in the the 1980s, but it's the craziest thing I read at least this week. So it, it still counts. I'll allow it. Cheating. Great, uh, great Matt Levine money stuff uh, newsletter on Thursday, and it's all about the this uh, price fixing scandal in the chicken industry, and he goes into detail about how chicken prices are set. It's it's really kind of fascinating that there is there are like chicken price indexes, right? And then a supplier and a buyer will make a deal for say the index plus 10 cents a pound or something like that. And he makes a comparison to LIBOR. You know, it's, it's basically the same thing because you ask a chicken supplier what their price is, you know, they're, they're probably going to give you a pretty generous, uh, high price, not generous, but, uh, you know, obviously there's, there's skepticism towards these indexes. That's not the crazy part. He goes on a tangent and talks about uh, Ray Dalio, the founder of Bridgewater, uh, one of the obviously one of the biggest hedge funds in the world, one of the most famous investors in the world. And here's where it gets crazy, Sarah. I kind of heard of this before, but I never really understood all the details. Do you understand the role Ray Dalio played in the Chicken McNugget? I have no idea. Have you heard about this? So apparently, have it, you heard about this, Sean? No, I assume he eats them. <laughs> I don't know. So. It's it's fascinating. So, you know, Dalio started off as a basically commodities focus. I think he traded credit and stuff like that, too. But he was very deep into commodities and um, he became well known for his observations, his daily observations research report. Obviously, Bridgewater still very well known for that. Um, and one of his customers in the 80s was McDonald's. Now, McDonald's decided they wanted to come out with the chicken McNugget. But they were worried that they'd be buying chicken in such large scale that they would single-handedly raise the price of chickens, right? And there was Low no liquidity. 
<laughs> right. So, uh, yeah, I guess so. You know, the Fed would have to step step in and I don't know. Buy chicken. Hatch chicken eggs or something. But <laughs> so the problem was there was no chicken futures contract <laughs> that they could hedge with. So Dalio figured out basically, well, the price of a chicken is basically uh, derived from the price of the corn and the soy meal that the soybean food that you feed it. So he came up with a futures contract that was basically based on the price of corn and soy meal, which allowed McDonald's to hedge their chicken costs by buying that this the synthetic derivative of soy and uh, and um, corn meal, and that was what apparently uh, allowed McDonald's the confidence to go and start selling the chicken McNugget because they were worried again about driving those chicken prices up. And having to either then immediately raise prices or just eat it on the margin. Um, so bottom line, uh, I know I'll have to tell my kids this at dinner time because they're big fans of the McNugget that they can thank, uh, at least in part, Ray Dalio for the chicken McNugget. That is pretty unbelievable, Mike. I'll give it to you. Because it was a story from the 80s. Tamps it down a little bit, but it's good enough that I'll, I'll give you the W. You, you, had, you had me at chicken price fixing. I was like, okay, he wins. I don't even know what that. I didn't, didn't know that exists. Well, yeah. That, so that's that's a whole separate story. And it's interesting. I check out Matt Levine's column uh, from this Thursday, June fourth, and it, it talks all about the the chicken price fixing scandal. It's basically antitrust. You know, different suppliers were were going back and forth and saying, hey, let's set the price here and see what you can do. Um, but a, a fascinating column by Matt. From uh, chicken pricing to IPOs to box office tickets. We, we have quite the roundup this week. Uh, Sean Snyder, we really appreciate you coming on the show. Hope to see you guys in person soon. Hopefully. Thanks, Sean. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at, at Sarah Ponsack. Mike is at Reganonymous. And you can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Jordan Gaspore, and the head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.